Happy Thanksgiving, church family, and I hope that uh, you, I hope you do have a happy Thanksgiving this, uh, uh, this week. Um, I want to tell you about a family that I read about this week, uh, about how they do Thanksgiving. Um, their Thanksgiving preparation doesn't begin like this week or finalizing itself on Wednesday. Their Thanksgiving preparation actually begins around the first uh, of uh, autumn. And what they do is they take these canning jars, these glass canning jars, and uh, they label uh, one or two or three of them, however many they need, as they fill up. But they, they, they label them the turkey jar. And what they do is they begin to put loose change or, or just spare dollar bills or even $5 bills. Everybody in the family does this. Children, mom, dad, sons, daughter. They, they, they begin filling up uh, the, the turkey jar and they, they begin cramming it, cramming it with coins and dollar bills and $5 bills. And, and, and they keep stuffing it more and more and more as the, the fall uh, proceeds. And then... Uh, the week of Thanksgiving, they go to the grocery store and they buy, uh, they buy turkey, they buy uh, Thanksgiving preparation uh, ingredients. And then they take those ingredients in grocery bags and then they go to their particular community's local food bank. And it has become uh, quite a tradition for this particular family. And it's become a tradition for this family to do something together. Uh, and, and not only together, but in a way that shows their faith to their neighborhood and to their relatives and to those who maybe aren't as connected to Christ or Christianity as they are. It's just become an annual tradition in which they are able to showcase the love of Christ by the love that they have for one another and for the love that they have for uh, uh, the, the under-resourced in their community. Um, what an opportunity that is. How you do the holidays. Think about it. How you do the holidays. And, and for this family, particularly Thanksgiving, because, you know, it's, it's not exactly like Christmas because there's not a tree and, and, you know, nobody gets anything underneath the turkey, right? So, <laughs> but it's become a, an opportunity for this family to, to share. And I saw a little bit of that last week in the foyer as families, marriages, uh, moms, dads, children were uh, 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 last Sunday afternoon uh, bringing ingredients to stuff into those Operation Christmas Child shoe boxes, which uh, uh, were making their way over, I believe, to Meadowbrook uh, Church. Uh, uh, and I don't know what the final count was, but uh, it's a preacher's count. Let's say 400. I think that was our goal, right? So, but anyway, there sure there it was just and more of you. I saw more of you uh, bringing the boxes in and and and. What an incredible tradition that is. Again, how you do the holidays can reflect the love that you have for Christ in a way that's attractive, attractive. Uh, and and I, I really want us to think about that this season, that how we do Thanksgiving, how we do Christmas can, can be done in such a way to show the beauty of our faith. I think that's why we've had our uh, Sunday afternoon marriage enrichment classes, his needs, her needs, and, and we've been uh, spending a lot of time in, in training and encouraging how we can build strong marriages. It's incredibly important in terms of showing the truth of Christianity in our lives. And yes, church family, that's why we're having Sue Miller here 
Pull out this insert that's in your bulletin. This is why we're having Sue Miller here on Sunday, December the 6th. And she's going to be with us uh, in our services. Uh, Lynn Peters, our children's minister, and I are going to be interviewing her uh, in our main services. And then from noon to 2, she'll be hosting a uh, parent luncheon uh, for our student life ministry. And then from 4 to 6, she'll be leading a, a session for parents on raising godly children. So Sue's going to be pretty hoarse after we're done with her on December the 6th. But that's part of the reason why she's coming, because it's so important to understand that, uh, uh, that building a strong marriage and, 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 and being accomplished, skilled parents can showcase the gospel of Christ. Uh, Marriage and family are strategic hills which must be taken if we are to show our world that Christianity is true. And and that's what I want to talk about this morning. In fact, here's what I want you to get if you get nothing else. This is today's lesson, all right? God wants my family to show love in a way that showcases Christ. That's it. God wants my family. God wants my marriage. God wants how I interact with Sarah and Ben and Brandon. God wants me to to show love. He wants my family to show love in a way that showcases Jesus Christ. That's the big idea. And that's what we're going to see as we take a look at Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. You'll find Titus 2 on page 844. And I'm going to be reading, I'm going to be reading the first 10 verses. Paul's letter to Titus. He's left Titus on the island of Crete where Christianity is very new. And here's here's what Paul has to tell Titus to tell the Christians regarding how they do family. So you're going to be hearing about these family groups in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Here we go. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith and love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything to try to please them, not not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way, they will make 
the teaching about God our Savior attractive. There it is, making the teaching of God our Savior attractive. Some of your translations say that they might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, to adorn it, to showcase it. You see how we get our big idea there? God wants me to love, wants my family to love in such a way that, uh, to show love in such a way that it showcases the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this letter to Titus is a story. And the story is how Christianity came to the island of Crete in the first century. And how sometime after the events which occurred in the book of Acts, sometime we think between the years A.D. 64 and A.D. 67, the apostle Paul and Titus landed on the island of Crete and began to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. I would have loved to have been there among the Cretans. What a culture. Remember, this wasn't Mr. Rogers' neighborhood they were going to. What's our memory verse on the letter to Crete? What's the big memory verse? Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Let's all say that together now. Here we go. One, two, three. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, the Apostle Paul says. I'm not making this up. Well, it was a pretty corrupt culture. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being among the audience where this this a, a Jewish Roman citizen, this, uh, this doctor of Old Testament letters, Hebrew Bible letters, shows up and begins proclaiming about this God-man who appeared in Judea and he taught unlike anyone else and he performed signs and wonders and miracles. And he said things that they'd never heard before. And, and then he was crucified on a Roman cross. He, he, he acted and spoke in, in such a divine, it was as if God himself had come down in the flesh. And then, and then this this. Jewish rabbi, Roman citizen on the island of Crete told about how this God-man suffered under Pontius Pilate. Well, Pilate was a real guy. I mean, he, he, they knew that he was the governor of the province of Judea. I mean, so this is, this is, not, like, this is not like myth. I mean, this is not like, you know, Zeus, who they claim to have a, a tomb on the island of Crete. But, I mean, everybody knew that, you know, it really wasn't Zeus's tomb because it was just mythology. It was just, it was just you know, fake. But everybody, you know, all the Cretes went along with it because they were Cretes. But this was... Always liars, evil brutes, lazy. This was the kind of, but not this Jewish rabbi who was a Roman citizen who spoke, who spoke about this God-man who suffered crucifixion under Pontius Pilate and, and then who was buried and then three days later he rose from the dead, a bodily 
resurrection. And he appeared to witnesses. And he appeared to 500 at one time. This room right here seats 550, by the way. Wow, wouldn't you have loved to have been there? I mean, you see, Christianity was... Christianity is not caught up in the mythology that the Cretans already knew about. No, no. It's always been grounded in history, and and it's been grounded in in eyewitness testimony. And, and, And so here, the apostle Paul was proclaiming Christ, and Titus was there, and, and, and these Christian communities began to form throughout the, the cities on Crete. So Christianity was very urban on the island of Crete. And, and what, what did they have to go on in terms of encouraging the Christians back in the first century? I mean, I go into my office and <laughs> I've got dozens and dozens of resources and books and you can get on the internet and you can download messages and books and resources, some good, some not so good. You can go to seminars. You can, you can go to, uh, to conferences and you can be encouraged by your... What did the Cretans have as they were trying to grow in Christ? They had the Apostle Paul... They had Titus. Oh, and they had the letter to Titus. The 46 verses, I think. What else did they have? Look at that marriage. Look at that family. See how they love each other. See how they care for one another. There's something remarkable about what's going on in their relationship, something that's attractive. You know, whatever that is, I want that. I want to drink from the well that they're drinking from. I want that. See, that's what they had. And that's why the Apostle Paul tells these Christians that, uh, you know, when your family shows love, it showcases the gospel. It, it, makes the, it makes the already attractive teaching of Jesus Christ oh, stunning. And, uh, and that's why it's so important, not only for first century Christians, but 21st century Christians, to pay attention to these verses here. And so let's just, uh, let's just kind of talk about this big idea. Let's just talk about first what, what, what it means when it says God wants my family to, to show love in a way. What's that look like here? Well, every one of these verses tell us here. These verses tell us how God wants us to show love in our family context and uh, and what you need to understand that every, every word in verses 1 through 10 were deliberately chosen for a particular context to the particular story that was happening in the first century. And I found out a lot more about that story, about that context this week. Um, I, read a, I read a book. Uh, it was just a fascinating book. I found it at the university. Uh, it's, um, 
It's a, written by a guy named Winters. Can we throw that up there? It's called Roman Wives, Roman Widows. You say, Randy, what do you do with your spare time? Well, that's what I did with my spare time this week. I read about this fascinating book uh, uh, called Roman Wives, Roman Widows that told a little bit about the, about the, the first century culture to which the letter to Titus is addressed. And, and it's not just about wives and, and widows. Uh, it's about it's about guys and uh, family life and marriage. And, you know, this past week we uh, had the gentleman go out to the beef house. And I, I'm sad that I wasn't able to be a part of the trip because it's just a lot of fun and a lot of fellowship. And, and um, let me tell you how the Cretans did the beef house trip, all right, according to Winter's book here. Uh, the, the, the guys would gather in, uh, they wouldn't go to Covington. They would pick one of their homes one of their estates, and you'd have about 15 or so guys, and they would go to one of the estates, I guess to the section, we'd call it the man cave, right? And uh, each, of the, each of the guys would, to, to this the association, each of the guys, uh, you know, in addition to whatever the host was providing, all right, uh, you know, protein-wise, the, 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 each of the guys would bring uh, a bushel of barley, uh, two and a half pounds of cheese, five pounds of figs, and eight gallons of wine. And now 15 guys would do this, all right? And then they would, in, they would invite young teenage boys to come as well. And that's what they called mentoring. <laughs> that's what the Cretes called mentoring, all right? Now, anytime you have 15 Cretans bellying up to the table consuming 120 gallons of wine, nothing good can come from that. <laughs> really, nothing at all. But that's kind of how they, that's just kind of their version of how they, uh, that's really how, that was their version of discipleship. That's how they brought the young boys up, watching this kind of, of, of animal house frat party behavior. And, and the women weren't far behind. The women weren't far behind. Uh, in the first century, there emerged what, what the Romans called the new Roman wife. The new Roman wife. And here was a description of her, according to Mr. Winters. She was a woman of financial security. She had quite a bit of social liberty. She acted mostly independent of her husband. Well, he was inebriated. I mean, how could she not? <laughs> She was socially prominent, she was glamorously confident, she was provocatively dressed, she was sexually assertive, she was promiscuous, the new Roman wife. Huh? See, we think the 1960s in our culture, you know, the swinging 60s, we don't have anything on the Cretans, folks, I'm telling you. So then, so, so you have these men's associations, and then you have the new Roman wives. But I haven't even told you about the couples, the couples gatherings that would occur. It was, it was enough to make a pastor blush. I mean, they, had, they would have dinners, okay, and then they would have uh, what was called after dinners, all right? That's what made this pastor blush. Well, here's what first century historian Pliny said about these after dinners that occurred on first century Crete. Here it is. I've got the quote up on the screen. Think of the drinking matches. This is, these are both men and women, okay? Think of the drinking matches. 
Think of the vessels engraved with scenes of adultery as if tippling. I had not heard that word before. Tippling. Tipsy? Tippling? Yeah. As if tippling were not enough in itself to give lessons in licentiousness. Then it is that greedy eyes bid a price for a married woman and their heavy glances betray it to her husband. Then the secrets of the heart are published abroad and the truth has come to be credited to wine. uh... And then Pliny goes on to explain what the after dinners was. He he calls it the, the intimate and unholy trinity of eating, drinking, and sexual immorality at private dinners. Wow. This is spouse swapping. That's what, we're, that's what we're talking about here. And that's how they celebrated Thanksgiving, the Cretans. It wasn't Puritan. It was Cretan. And that's The culture, that's the world which Paul has left Titus to straighten out. (laughs) Thanks, Paul. (laughs) Yeah. And Paul's words to Titus were words which Titus needed to communicate to the Christian communities, words which said there's a better way. There There is a better way. And, uh, and let's begin with the older men, you see. see. See, rather than going 10 rounds with Jose Huervo, let's have the older men take the lead in being temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, self-controlled, as opposed to what goes on in these dinners and after dinners. And sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Now, we see faith Hope and love, often in the New Testament. But here the Apostle Paul inserts the word endurance. And isn't that what we need to see from the older men in our faith? Isn't that what we need to see from the 60s and 70s and 80-something-year-old men? Men who know how to endure in the faith and to do it in a respectable, noble way. Men who know how to finish the race strong. That's what we're talking about here in these verses. Men, older men who show the church family how to express love in a way that showcases the love of Christ. Don Carson is a Christian scholar and author, and his father was a pastor. And after his father uh, passed away, Carson was able to uh, receive his father's journals And here is what Carson found in one of his father's journals. It was a prayer. Merciful Father, save me from the sins of old men. Too much looking backwards. Too much regretting the past. Too much whining because of aches and pains. The ease with which I now turn on the TV. Save me from the sins of old men men. And Paul tells Titus to to train the older women, to teach the older women, to be reverent in the way they live. Oh, it's a beautiful picture there, reverent. the, The word picture is that of a priestess, the demeanor of a priestess 
in a temple where with such dignity and respect, priestess like these older matriarchs, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine. See, again, referring back to those after dinners, but to teach what is good. Nothing good can come from those after dinners. You teach what is good with their lives. Verse 4 says, then they can train. That word train literally means to give a wake-up call, to give a wake-up call to the younger women. Oh, when I read that and studied that verse, I just couldn't help but think about our apples of gold ministry and the the ministry that goes on with our matriarchs who train and encourage and challenge the younger women in our church family to be godly, to be priestess-like so that those younger women to, will love their husbands and children to be self-controlled. You see how self-control is kind of a, I mean, that's, that, there's, a, there's a pattern there that's going on. Self-control is mentioned several times. To be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands. And what we need to understand, so often we read our own culture into these verses and What you need to understand is that Paul's words occurred in a day where the options were not, you know, career outside the home versus, honey, please stay home and wear an apron. That that wasn't even on the table. Rather, the options options were, honey, instead of uh, going out tonight again to eat and drink and have sex with other people, why don't we stay home and put Junior to bed and pray with him? Why not? And then given this, isn't it perfectly sensible for Paul to tell Titus to tell the older women to train the younger women, you see? Please pay attention to your family. Please pay attention to the people in your lives. And and to have the older women give the wake-up call to the younger women, saying to them, hey, when your spouse insists that you not participate in the Holy Trinity of after-dinners, kindly cooperate. And then in verse 6, verse 6, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. And then there's that phrase, in everything. And this is something else I learned this week as I was looking through these verses. It it was such a a rich learning week for me. You know, we receive this in English, and the verses, the versification, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, that didn't exist in the original. Paul didn't write chapter 2, verse 1. He did not do that. That's not, that's not how it, it came about. In, in fact, we received the English. The New Testament originally came to us in, in the Greek language. And so, let's throw up verses 6 and 7. I want to show you something because it pertains to this word, in everything. Now, that's how it looks in our Bibles. Let's see the next slide. That, I mean, that's, that's how it would have appeared, you know, it, it, in, in Greek, there would, there would be no punctuation, and we wouldn't find versification, but here's what you have. You've got this word, in everything, and, and you can see, if you just look at this right now, what does the word, in everything, refer to? Does it refer to what goes before it or after it? And every translation has to make a decision about that, and... And many translations say that the in everything has to do with Paul's words to Titus. But many scholars suggest that the words in everything are talking to the young men. 
Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything, in everything. And doesn't that make sense? Because if a young man is going to self-destruct, isn't it because of a lack of self-control in everything? A lack of self-control in terms of what that young man puts into his mind and his eyes and his stomach, you see? What else needs to be said to a young man other than you be self-controlled in everything? And then in verses 9 and 10, Paul tells Titus to speak directly to the slaves. See, see, the instruction is not to the masters who are then to inform the slaves because in the church family, there's going to be all different classes of people. And the assumption that Christianity brings to the table is that even slaves, even those who are in the lowest class of society, they have the capability of making a moral choice. They have consciences and Christianity gives dignity to slaves in a way that the Roman Empire never could. The slave, even in his or her position, can bring luster to the gospel by how they do their work. You may feel like a slave in your work. You may feel like that your job it means nothing in the scheme of things, but God is telling us here, no, no, no. You must understand that as a Christian, Listen, in 21st century America, if we truly believe in the priesthood of all saints, then that means that the person who stands behind the cash register at Taco Bell, who does their job with dignity, that is just as much a holy sight as as this fortunate pastor who stands before God's people. Giving luster to the gospel. Do you see what's going on here? Just as Paul offered two visions of leadership in chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, safe leadership. Verses 10 through 16, toxic leadership. Here in Titus chapter 2, Paul is offering two visions of a, a nuclear family, one which is dysfunctional and loveless and individualistic and selfish, and it's not really even a family because you've got married singles just sharing the same roof. But the other picture is a loving, caring community of believers, healthy relationships, which reflects the loving, sharing community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The one picture maligns the Word of God. See, that's what goes on here with these after-dinners. It's not that the family name is disgraced. It's that the Word of God, there's bigger stakes than that. It's the Word of God that's disgraced. The other picture is one that adorns the doctrine of God. The one picture slanders Christ. The other picture gives luster to Christ. And that's why Paul tells Titus to tell the Christians then and now that in the family, when you love one another and when you show love, then that's what showcases Christ's love and that's what makes Christianity attractive One author put it this way. To adorn the gospel means that we are the necklace and the gospel is the beautiful woman. The beautiful woman is the gospel, the doctrine of God our Savior. So how how well we love each other in the family will either increase or decrease the attractiveness of the gospel that we profess. You know, the truth is, we are the ornaments 
on the tree of Christian truth. We're the, we're the ornaments. Are we showcasing Christ in a way that, that just shows the beauty of Jesus? Huh? Can I just suggest a way that you could do that this year? Lisa Shelter is going to come up and talk about this a little later, but in your bulletins, there's a salt and light Christmas gift idea. And we're going to have the opportunity in a few weeks as, to begin a family tradition and to go purchase these items for the under-resourced and then to make these available. And this is something we can do as a, in your nuclear families and in a way that will showcase Christ's love. And God allows us to beautify the tree of Christian truth because, because God sent one who adorned the Roman tree with his beaten and bloodied body. And you may say to yourself, well, I don't have a family. I lost my marriage. You know what? Look around you here. You've got your church family. Your church family who loves you and how we treat one another and how we show respect to one another will display the love of Christ in our community. God wants my family to show love in a way that showcases Christ. I read this week of uh, one who thought about how each, each part of the Thanksgiving meal reflects Christ. This person wrote, the wheat gave its best as it was beaten to separate the heart of the wheat from the plant. And that heart was given to the wheel of the mill and ground into flour, and the flour was mixed and beaten down time and time again as it was prepared for the oven. And then the oven with great blasts of heat, baked the bread that now sits on our table. And then the cow gave her milk, sacrificing a part of herself that we might drink, and the milk gave its best as the cream was separated from the milk, and the cream was beaten to become the topping for our desserts, and it was churned to become the butter for our bread. And then the grapes gave their best as they yielded to the hand that bruised and crushed them. They were tipped from vessel to vessel to purify them as they aged and became became the drink that now sparkles in the crystal of our table. And then the main course gave the greatest gift of all, its own life, for the feast of plenty. There is another table, another feast, and this table has been carefully planned and prepared for us by God, who has given us his best, his only begotten, beloved son, Jesus Christ, was crushed and bruised and broken, and poured out unto death for us. All the planning, all the preparation, all the work, all that was needed is now finished. It is finished. And he calls us to remember. He calls us to come. He calls us to be filled as we celebrate.